Everyone, welcome back to the show. Uh, today's guest is someone that I am super stoked to talk to. Um, first, for who they are and the great thoughtfulness that they bring to their role in terms of leadership and just intention. And then also because I believe what they do and the organization they work with is ultra cool. So with that, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, for the uninitiated, for those who don't know, uh, who are you and what do you do? Cynthia Bolter, and I am the Chief Operating Officer with the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Okay, so I think most people would know what a food bank is, but I think they only probably understand on the most surface level of what a food bank is. Mm -hmm. So what can you tell us about the food bank, like services, like anything you want to expand on from there? So our mission is getting healthy food to those in need, and we put a big focus on healthy so right now, particularly, we're seeing more people than ever before needing support, people who don't have enough money at the end of the month, people who are struggling on um, fixed incomes, et cetera, or job loss. Um, and many people who are food insecure also have a lot of different health issues. So that healthy component is really important because fresh food helps a number of different health conditions. So we provide food weekly to our clients and uh, over 60% of it is fresh. And we provide food in uh, North Vancouver, um, well, for the North Shore, and we focus in North Vancouver, and then Vancouver, Burnaby, and New Westminster, um, different days. Vancouver is our biggest location where most of our clients are. And then we also provide food to over 140 community agencies, also every single week. Um, and that's more than ever before as well. And so these are housing programs, um, SROs, women's shelters, transition homes, schools, many different programs, uh, neighborhood houses, community centers, and they take the food we give them and turn that into their food programming. Um, so everything from you know a seniors program to um, people who are unhoused and need to come for snacks or three meals a day, um, that kind of thing. So, so we're doing all of this weekly. About 60% of the food we provide goes to individuals and about 40% goes to our community agencies. And it's a much more complex organization than I realized when, when I started. The giving out of the food is the easiest part. There's a huge component uh, behind that of organization and refrigeration and reclamation and fundraising and lots of, lots of different things. But that's where we end up. Yeah, and that's why when I was like on the surface, like it, when I was thinking about it before our conversation, I was like, huh, food bank, like, that sounds on the surface level, like I understand it, mm -hmm. but it's gotta be like, okay, oh, we get some food, we give some food, but the complexities of that have got to be mm -hmm. massive. I wanna get into that. Let's talk about the, the term that you use that I've, I've heard um, from my time when I was working within the social services was a term that I, I started to notice, which would be f food insecurity. But I don't know if that's a generalized term that most people would understand. So if we think of food insecurity, how would we define that? And then also like, how, like what are the causes and just in generalities of food mm -hmm. insecurity? So food insecurity, I kind of look at it as having maybe about three different levels. Um, and that could look anything like um, you are concerned about and or starting to run out of money at the end of the month or the end of the week and you don't have enough to provide healthy food for yourself or for your family. Um, then, you know, another level sort of a bit more severe would be you are starting to, um, cut back and having to make some hard choices around, I can't buy that healthy food. I've got to buy 
volume I've got to buy, less nutritious, more sugar, more salt, not as good for the kids, not as good for me, um, cheaper food just to fill up because I can't afford the rest. And then you get into levels of food insecurity, which are more severe, where people are skipping meals. Um, we've had people come and register as clients who haven't eaten in three days, who haven't had produce in three months, um, parents who have been skipping meals so they have enough food for their children. Um, so it gets into it, those, those levels. And, and the cause is poverty. Um, and when, you know, the pandemic hit and people started to receive CERB from the government, initially most food banks saw a dip of about 30% in attendance, a combination of, I think people wanted to stay in and try and find food more locally. Um, but then they did have some dispensable income, um, you know, a, a guaranteed income of sorts. And then when CERB ran out, that's when we really started to see the climb and it just hasn't stopped. So um, Food Banks Canada is a national organization and they advocate with the federal government for things like fixed incomes and pensions that are indexed to inflation, um, minimum wage increases, um, and some kind of basic income so that people have the resources to feed themselves. Because food banks right across the country right now are, are run off their feet. Many are running out of food. They can't raise enough money. Um, we all know that we aren't a solution, but until there is one, um, we're an important resource in the community. It's so all the stuff that you're talking about, it's like this, like we know, but we don't know, you know, like I, I think most people will know like, Hey, there's massive challenges with poverty uh, in North America, which is such a crazy thing to think about because we're in North America and it seems like we have just endless abundance, but major, major, major challenges uh, with poverty, um, housing insecurity, uh, underhoused populations, and then food insecurity like is so, it's just, we know, but we don't know. And, and something I'm curious about your thinking, and when I say we, just kind of the general, mm -hmm. general population, um, and I don't know if it's we don't know because we don't want to know or if we're just busy with our own lives. Even as you're telling me about this, it's like my gut is sinking. It's like, oh my gosh, like it's such an issue. And one something I was wondering about is how, do, how does um, what I've heard the term like food deserts fall into that as well? Like, what, how would you describe? Are you familiar with that term? I am. I mean, yeah, a food desert being a, an area where people um, don't have access to uh, fresh food, particularly, or any kind of sort of nutritious food. Um, one of the ways we have approached our um, community agency partners is really looking at the whole catchment area that we cover and looking at what agencies we had, particularly when the pandemic hit. Where are the areas where we don't cover um, as much or we don't have as many partners? And that's not to say there aren't other agencies um, in that area providing food. And certainly through the pandemic, there's been more food recovery, which is great and getting food into the community. Um, but we really wanted to look at areas that we didn't have great coverage and get in there, find a new partner so that people who were struggling with food insecurity in that particular neighborhood would have access to fresh food through one of our partners. And that's what I'm loving so much about what I'm hearing here is like it's fresh food. Because like when I think of food banks, I think of what I'm sure a lot of people think of when they were kids. It's like your school's doing a food drive. So you go to your parents' cupboard and you grab like, what is the thing in here that I don't like? <laughs> like cream corn or whatever it is. 
you bring it to school and that that has been for most people i think your average person is probably the biggest connection they have to a food drive and i i could be wrong on that um when you're talking about like healthy food if we go to let's say like the downtown east side there's not like a lot of grocery stores around there but there's lots of little little convenience stores yeah. but that's not necessarily like healthy food or right. fresh food or nutritious food that push on nutritious food is that a relatively new thing for for um, your kind of service, or is that something that's always existed within? It, within I would it? say within um, the last sort of three to five years, food banks in general across Canada have really started to focus on the fresh. Um, when our CEO and I started, we started uh, about five years ago. We had about twenty percent fresh of the food that we were providing, and. So working with our team and the, the industry partnerships that we have with producers and um, growers, farmers in particular, we really wanted to increase that because we are very mission-driven and healthy food to those in need. Healthy is fresh. And we have some amazing partners who um, provide us with pre-consumer food, meaning food that's been over-ordered, say by Superstore slash Loblaws, and it hasn't hit the shelf yet but they just have too much. And we, we joke because the food in our fridges is often better than the food we all have at home. There's dairy, there's eggs, um, lots of cheese, lots of non-meat proteins as well as meat proteins and tons of produce. Um, and you know, for, for us to be able to provide that, we know that's A, healthy, but it's also a lot of what sort of makes up that expense, right, in the grocery cart. And so we took that a bit farther and we started building programs for kids and seniors who amongst our clients are the most vulnerable. We had a baby program, it wasn't much to look at. So we just sort of systematically built. Uh, so now from, uh, if you have a baby from birth to two, we have a two-step program um, of core nutrition from formula to baby food and cereal and some first foods. And then we built a preschooler pack for children two to five. So when you come and we scan your client card, we know who's in your family. Um, and if you have a three-year-old, then monthly we run these extra programs and you can pick up an extra nutritional program for your three-year-old, um, which is focusing on iron and protein and brain and muscle development. And then we focused on grade schoolers after that. So six to 12-year-olds help parents fill the lunchbox with healthy stuff and some snacks that kids can eat on their own. And again, that's a monthly program. And then we focused on seniors um, because we know over 60% of uh, our seniors are single and senior people and single people don't often like to cook for themselves. So easy to eat, high protein, nutritious foods, and so much of it is fresh in these programs. And that, all of those programs, we really focus on purchasing the food for. The rest of our um, menus are a combination of purchased food and then industry donations. So large pallets, 40 pallets of grapes coming in, 30 pallets of peppers, you know, 20 pallets of mushrooms. And we build all of these things into the menus and we don't take food drives anymore. So really? in January, 2022, we stopped that. In about my first week, I looked around and I thought, this is not good food that's coming in. We have to pay to get rid of the waste. It's kind of gross for the volunteers to have to sort through the stuff that is from the back of the cupboard. And you, you wouldn't probably believe the stuff we get, even in the grocery store bins uh, that we still do, um, except it's um, some of it's pretty dodgy, half eaten, just really 
doubtful stuff that would be coming through. So anyway, we got ourselves to the point where our funding was strong enough and we felt we were in a position to educate our donors and say, um, we love that you want to support the food bank. This isn't the best way. And here's why. Here are other ways to support us through financial donations and volunteering. And that helps us achieve our mission much better. That is an amazing shift. And again, so it's like most people know what food banks are, but they wouldn't necessarily know there's been that shift. So it's like mm -hmm. how best to help a, a food bank is no longer going to the cupboard and picking out like the food that you don't want to eat yourself yeah. and, and donating it. It, it, there are different, um, different, more effective ways. I, I want to get to that uh, in a minute. I've heard you use a term, and correct me if I'm wrong, was it um, food recovery? Mm -hmm. So what's food recovery? So food recovery is related to the fact that in Canada, we produce enough food for over 50 million people, and there are 38 million of us. More than half of the food that we produce in this country goes to waste. It's horrendous. And a lot of that is happens before even you or I see it at the grocery store. So uh, there is too much food being produced for farmers' quotas, or there isn't enough moving off the shelves. That food is literally going to landfill. So we work with an organization called Refeed Canada in Langley, and they focus on huge industry um, excess of fresh food. And in the fall, that might be truckloads and truckloads of mandarins that were stored at two degrees higher attempt than they should have been, or um, some produce that um, was stored at, at a temperature that was slightly off, or avocados that are two centimeters too small and don't meet the quality standards. There's all kinds of, of food like this out there, and it's perfectly healthy. So, and there are other organizations doing this as well. And and that is something that can happen right now to address food insecurity. Get your hands on this food that is perfectly healthy. Get it into the hands of those who need it. And then Refeed has a, a two other streams where if the food isn't good for people, then they have farms who will take it for their farm animals. And then if it's past that, they turn it into nutrient-rich fertilizer and soil amendments that goes right back into our local land and helps grow food without chemicals. So they are really a zero waste facility. And that's, that's what we like to focus on. This is like, this is one of those things that you hear, you can't actually believe where. Absolutely. And so previous to, to these efforts, like, so we've got this organization and what was their name again? Refeed Canada. Refeed Canada. So Refeed Canada and organizations like Refeed Canada, before that, this food, for like arbitrary things like, hey, this avocado doesn't is like slightly too small. Mm -hmm. All of this food is going to waste, but we have people literally who don't have enough food to eat. Mm -hmm. How can that happen? Our CEO has a saying, um, and we all know it because he says it so often. He says, there's not a shortage of food, there's a distribution problem. Northern Canada aside, there are some very challenging logistic elements um, to getting food into Northern Canada, but Food Banks Canada is working on that. But for the rest of Canada, there really is no reason why kids should be going to school hungry or anyone should be going to bed hungry because we produce so much food. We just have to make sure there's, there's business in waste companies trucking this food and putting it into landfill, either here or in Washington state. So then you have to break that chain, uh, which isn't always popular, and uh, redirect that food. Um, and it's the, the quantities are are massive, but through our partnerships, 
um, with farmers, uh, we are able to get a lot of that directly and then refeed is another source for us. How was this, ha how has this been happening though? Like how has society gotten into a place? And I know this is a huge question, but how can we have such an abundance mm -hmm. and have a clear need? Like people just don't have enough food to eat. Like children don't have enough food to eat. Mm -hmm. And we have this massive waste. How can this happen? Like how, what has caused this to happen? Cause it's a, like, a, as you're saying it, I'm like outraged. Mm -hmm. I know it, it, it's hard to wrap your mind around. I mean, I think, um, you know, food banks uh, on average are having sort of their 40 year anniversary right around now. And as important as they are, um, I think that society and governments have come to rely on them. I and mean, we have government organizations in BC who in their orientations for new Canadians refer people to the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. So if the government is relying on a charity to feed its citizens and its newcomers, then to me, they aren't addressing the issue themselves. And, and I think there's something in there. And to answer your question, how have we gotten here? We've gotten here because somebody else has been dealing with the problem. But even that is breaking now. And then I imagine with business, it's just like, well, what's the quickest, easiest, cheapest way to deal with the, this overage? Let's just get rid of it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I'm digesting what you're saying as you're saying it, because I'm like, I again, going back to what I'd said right almost from the beginning, it's like I know about food banks, but there's so much behind it. Mm -hmm. And food insecurity is like, of all the things I think about, like I because of my background, I often think about like addiction and homelessness first and mental health concerns first and, and getting access to services and all that, where I view food insecurity as kind of like a secondary or tertiary thing, just in the way that I think about mm -hmm. things in terms of services. I haven't thought a lot about food banks and something you've said there is like kind of shocking to me. It's like when you're saying food banks are in, in large are kind of having their 40th anniversary. Mm -hmm. If you can, just in the most general sense, like what's the history in North America or at least in Canada of food banks? Like when did they start? How did they develop? Like who's, who started them up? For, for us, um, the, our, I think our first location was Christ Church Cathedral um, in 1983 in a financial crisis, um, intended as a short-term stopgap measure when the economy was crashing. Um, and there were so many people who couldn't afford groceries. But with each crash, we gain more clients and we don't really lose them. And that's true across Canada. So there seems to be a bit of a reliance built. And certainly, I mean, salaries, pensions, nothing is really keeping up with, with inflation right now. But it was intended as a, as a short-term measure and um, the reliance has continued to be there. And I think, you know, particularly now, we've talked about the, the fresh food, that is so important um physical health helps to build mental health and the food that we put into some of these community agencies that we have it might be a women's shelter um you have street workers for example um and they um to to come together for a meal um can be such a meaningful thing participating in cooking with the other women in the in the home We've even had our partners tell us about one of the residents isn't feeling well and they'll have another resident put a plate together and take her that food. And that might not seem that out of the ordinary for some of us, 
But for some of these women who don't have a lot of kindness in their lives, to be in a scenario where food is the center, they're being involved in something, it allows someone to show um, some caring and some friendship for another person. Um, it, it can be life-changing. And, and we have had clients say to us that you are the reason we exist um, versus not existing because of the food that we have received from you and the health that we've gained. Yeah, it makes me think of, um, uh, I imagine you're familiar with Rain City Housing. Mm -hmm. So, and for anyone listening who doesn't know, Rain City Housing is uh, a low barrier income housing, uh, not-for-profit in Vancouver, um, originally named Triage. And they were named Triage because it was intended to be temporary short-term housing. And, you know, it was like started in this kind of yeah. like little little space and just like, oh, like, we'll just do this for now. And then it, it became a significantly sized not-for-profit organization in Vancouver because the underhoused population is not shrinking. It's growing and it's becoming much, much more drastic and much, much more serious. So that's how something, just as you're saying, like a food bank is like, oh, this is a temporary measure started in like a church or the basement of the church people in a community come together like oh let's just help people with like mind the gap here like fill in the gap to oh the gap is not being filled this is actually yeah. becoming a thing now we have to create formal organizations so organizations started informally to help people for the short term the more that happens the bigger society the bigger you know society gets the faster our economy goes the bigger costs inflation the less now, I don't want to say the less that government needs to do, and I'm, I'm not suggesting you're saying that at all either, but the government is kind of just letting other people deal with it while it keeps trucking on, while also sense. having double the amount of food that we need for the population, and 50% of that, near 50% of that, just going to waste. What a dire situation. So reflecting on you personally, what caused you to want to step into that breach. Because as you're telling me about it, my heart is sinking. It is, it is relentless work and I certainly had no idea what I was getting myself into when, uh, when I applied for this role. Um, I had been in, in business for a long time and enjoyed it. Um, saw this opportunity, knew of the organization, had heard of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. I grew up in Vancouver until I was 21. Um, and I thought, you know, this would be a great opportunity to bring some business skills into a not-for-profit, um, potentially make things more efficient, um, help them to grow in areas where they might need to grow, bring some of that sort of discipline. Um, so that was kind of the, the initial attraction. And I, I just didn't realize that it really needed a, a rebuild from, from the ground up, which is what we've done over the last five years. Um, but it, it is relentless. We do a lot of work around mental health for our staff because you do all this work and you feed all of these people and you provide food to all these agencies and guess what? You get to do exactly the same thing the next week and the week after that. Um, so we have worked on the benefits that we have for our staff. Um, we've improved those two or three times over the years. We've added um, mental health supports and improved the ones that, that we have and added financial um, compensation to provide for more counseling, bringing in trauma counselors for our frontline teams um, regularly. Um, so because particularly our staff who register clients, people tell you their stories or our staff who are on the phone. Um, 
And it's very much like a counselor. Sometimes you need to debrief the counselor after they have talked to the group or the client. So I'm grateful for my background in, in mental health um, around that. And so that I can recognize that and, and understand that people are listening to a lot all the time. They need to be encouraged to take care of themselves. But as an organization, we need to step into the breach there too and make sure that we are proactively doing something about it. Yeah, and I'd love to talk about um, what you've done with your staff, like how you identify the need and, and built it. But before we get to that, let's talk about you specifically. So you grew up in BC until you say twenty one. Mm -hmm. So uh, what part of uh, what part of was it Vancouver? Mm -hmm. What part of Vancouver? Dunbar. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, you're growing up in Vancouver, and what was your first kind of track professionally? What did you start doing? You said you were in business before. I was. Um, so, I mean, in Vancouver, um, I grew up uh, with uh, horses. I was fortunate enough to ride. Um, and so that was a big part of my, my time. Um, and I also, um, I just really enjoyed school and I loved writing. Um, so I got a, a BA in English, which, you know, did absolutely nothing for me <laughs> other than I got to write and read some stuff. Um, and I guess it shows that I could start and finish something. But um, I got into um, business primarily in Toronto um, and found myself attracted to roles where um, A, I was responsible for the front line. So I've always been really passionate about the front line, whatever role I'm in, um, because to me, that's what the rest of us are here to provide for. And that's the reason that we're here is whatever's happening in the front line. And then just a broad base of, of business operations. Um, I like to be busy. I like to do a lot. So, um, you know, finance and, um, and HR and operations and customer service and logistics and a bunch of different things. So um, worked through a couple of different organizations, got into some um, large financial organizations in, in call centers, um, and then eventually moved back to BC uh, with BC Hydro um, as part of their customer service management team. Mm -hmm. um, so in all that time, what was your personal understanding of food banks? Really, just as you described, you know, there'd be a food drive at school uh, and you would look in your cupboard and uh, and see what you had. And then, you know, as a parent, um, before I worked at, at the food bank and I would get the notices coming home about things that they would need um, for hamper families at school or something, um, I started to to treat that differently and start to try and do that in a more targeted way. So, okay, let's focus on this meal for this family or breakfast items, or I need to buy something for, for each day. Um, and then I also kind of started to figure out that gift cards are probably also really useful um, because that's actual cash and then the family can buy what they need. Um, and, uh, and I also started volunteering a bit around delivery of those hampers, um, when my kids were in school. Um, and that was pretty devastating. Just seeing the need in your own community, um, very imprinted in my, my brain around, um, the need for these services. So, but not until I was sort of in my adult years did any of that kind of take hold. Again, it's just like, yeah, food bags exist. Like, oh, that's that's a good service. And that kind of like, well, they exist now. 
you can get into that thinking of like, well, they've probably always existed and they probably will always exist and not the like, well, why did they start? How did they start? Should they be a forever thing or should we adjust the society? Um, but what I find super interesting about what you just said is like, as you um, uh, got a little bit older, you, uh, you, you started with that kind of just general thinking that most mm -hmm. people have, but as you got a bit older, you got involved with things that had to do with your kid's school and, and then getting more involved in just like things like food delivery. Mm -hmm. And I could already hear you were starting to apply your business mind thinking to what you're seeing. It's like, oh, well, gift cards would be way better. And you're already doing that kind of like data analysis and trying to create efficiencies mm -hmm. very much because I know you're an analytical person, but also like putting probably your business training into effect. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned you had horses and Monica had mentioned to me that you're a big animal lover. You love animals. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and for you, there is a connection to animal welfare and people welfare and that showing care for animals is a connection to showing care for people. Do you want to expand on that more? Yes. Well, and I think the you know, when you say that, the first thing that jumps into my mind is the, the violence link, which is something that I've learned about through the animal welfare work that I've done. And that's people who abuse animals very likely will abuse other people. Um, if not already, then soon. It, it uh, unfortunately is progressive. So um, there are many organizations across the country, animal welfare organizations working with um, police, for example. So in partnership where if police go into a call um, uh, and there is um, child abuse uh, or spousal abuse involved and there are pets in the home, they will alert the SPCA, the Humane Society, something like that, because it's almost guaranteed that if one is being abused, the other is being abused in the home. Um, so uh, there's there's a, a link sort of on the negative side there. But for me, um, I think it was just the simplicity of the relationship with animals. I remember that light bulb going off when I was in high school, which I didn't particularly enjoy. So getting on my bike at 3.08 and riding down to Southlands was the best part of the day. and um, I started to wonder why, why I loved this so much. I mean, other than just I was an animal person. Um, but I realized that with the horses, for example, um, it's, it's just so simple. And, and I'm a simple person. You're either building trust and becoming their friend or you're not. And there are no head games. You can't lie to a horse. You can't be passive aggressive with a horse. Um, it's just very straightforward. and. Um, I was in a, a clinic once with um, Captain Mark Phillips, a three-day event clinic, and uh, I always love what he said. Um, he was talking about uh, when you walk the cross-country course, so if your three-day eventing is a dressage test in a ring and then some stadium jumping, and then you're um, out in the country jumping over you know, ditches and hedges and all kinds of things very fast. And um, he said, if I'm walking that course and there's some footing I don't like or a jump I don't like and I think my horse might get hurt, then I will disqualify myself. I'll do the course, but I'll, I'll go around that jump and be disqualified. But I'll go home at the end of the day with a horse in the trailer that trusts me. And I just thought, oh my God, that's, that's amazing. And um, so yeah, to me, that's, it's everything. Yeah, I, you know, again, People listening, uh, I always want to make sure that I'm not positioning myself from a place of judgment. But you know, I've, I'm very ardent vegan and um, very interested in animal rights and uh, and strong believer and promoter of animal rights. And one of the things 
that I think about when it comes to things like, let's say the meat industry. It's like, you know how like beef is called beef. It's not called cow and pork is called pork, not pig. Right. right? And that, that disconnect from where meat comes from. Then it shows up in these like packages and it's all like clean and all, all of that. I understand uh, why we eat meat and for all sorts of reasons. And I, I really, uh, I believe I'm near to non-judgmental about about that in a lot of ways but one of the things that i always want to encourage people to think about is like the inherent violence and waste that's involved with like things like factory farming uh and uh, so when i think of the amount when you're saying like the amount of food that's wasted in canada we make food for this amount of people but really we have this amount of people and the rest of that gets wasted a lot of that is also like animal life and animal suffering and animal animal torture and I know that sucks to talk about and hear about, and I'm not going to tell someone how they need to eat. But one of the things I would suggest is if we're in that space of wastefulness and you're someone who feels that eating meat is essential for you, it's like, I think one of the most important things we could do in society is all agree we should reduce suffering. And even if you think that you should be eating meat and and that's right for you, and I'm not going to argue with anyone about that, that's up to them. Shouldn't we just at least reduce the wasted amount of meat because that means we reduce suffering we reduce death we reduce harm and also all the things that go into taking breeding animals that they're they're out the 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 death of those animals not only goes to waste but also you're spending a lot of resources raising them Mm -hmm. and it's still going to waste so i think like from an animal perspective and um once we get used to being violent to one one uh, part of the population on the planet and we disregard their lives, it becomes a lot easier to do that to other people and to kind of turn a blind eye. And I do think like any uptick in coldness to human beings certainly has some kind of connection to the dismissing animal lives as being like worthy or relevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would totally agree. Let's go back to not-for-profit leadership. Um, I came up in the not-for-profit sector Mm -hmm. And uh, I have so many cool memories and stories, and I loved the work. I worked in three different not-for-profits, and I don't want to generalize this to like all not-for-profits, but the thing that I saw from not-for-profit, from one to the other to the other, was poor leadership. And I don't mean poor leadership because the people were bad people, but like people who weren't trained how to be leaders. Um, They didn't have any background in it. They didn't have any support. They didn't have any training. And now they're in charge of something which output is to help other people. And the help that other people are getting is pretty good. But the people who are getting brutalized are the staff. And they could either be getting brutalized because their leaders are cruel to them and crappy and passive aggressive and like mean and all of these things. And again, I started by saying they're not bad people. I don't think it's bad people, but it's like if you're leading people and you're not good at it, you're over capacity, you haven't been trained, you don't have any background. It's hard to show up as your best self and be good. It's very easy to become shitty and mean and all that. So either the leadership is like crappy and mean and, and not, um, not thoughtful, or they're indulgent. Like they're, again, they're just kind of like going off of what they'd prefer to do rather than what people need. Mm-hmm. But mostly it's just that they're not practiced leaders. They don't understand strategy. They don't understand how to build a healthy, light, uh, uh, long-lasting organization. And the people who get caught in the pinch are these wonderful frontline workers who come in with all this good intent and all this caring, 
So from one not-for-profit to the next to the next, I saw frontline workers and also therapists just put through the grinder. And if, you, if I think of like, a, of like a true grinder, it's frontline workers and therapists and social workers who, while trying to do their best for, for the most vulnerable population, are being ground to the absolute like base. And so many wonderful people have left the industry because of just rotten, terrible leadership. But not rotten because the people intend to be rotten, but really bad leadership. I've seen that in three not-for-profits. And I've also you know, heard tales from my friends who still work in the not-for-profit. Um, you seem, not seem, and I believe, I believe this to, to my core, is that you've taken a different approach. And you've really put a focus on having strong leadership. What are your thoughts on the es essential components or essential mindset of leadership in a not-for-profit space? Well, first, I mean, I would just agree with your observation. And one of the things that hit me with our management team as we started to need to grow the organization um, was they were, as you say, very passionate. They brought some great skills and experience from the industry, but they had no good leaders and they weren't bringing the management skills. So we needed to help them learn how to be good leaders. And we're continuing that to this day. We, we just in the last week um, uh, conducted um, for the second in what will be an ongoing series of management coaching sessions and how can we be a better leadership team and what do we want leadership to look like at the GVFB. Um, so, uh, but yes, I, I realized that in talking to these managers, their horror stories of what they had experienced at other not-for-profits of just realizing they've never had leadership training, they haven't had a good mentor, anything like that. So I think in addition to coming in and wanting to run it like a business with transparency for our board, for our donors, um, and operational transparency, financial transparency, and for our staff and the, the community as well, we saw the churn of employees initially. And it's hard to find good people. When you find good people, you want to keep good people. So what is that going to take? We had to look at our um, compensation. We built an RSP plan, which didn't exist before. As I say, we've massively um, revamped the benefits and looked at what are the benefits that the staff are using the most and does that make sense? And then let's look at, let's increase those wherever wherever we can. Um, so for me, I think the, the not-profit leadership was about... Um, creating a space where we we can't lead in salaries necessarily but we can lead in other areas and we wanted to build a culture that was second to none and for people to want to spend some significant time in their careers we've created professional development funds we have now some internal promotional opportunities that didn't exist before um, we don't want people to just come in and think oh i'll spend a year or two here and and then I'll move on. People move on, absolutely. But whenever that happens, I think you you want to be able to see what they've been able to give to the organization as a legacy, as well as what they have themselves developed. Um, so we've we focused a lot on that, from you know, including things like being a living wage employer and and other financial things like that. Um, it was a like a chasm of leadership there it was not in place and we needed to build that up and so we've just tried to be leaders that will do what we say we're going to do 
be approachable, listen. Um, we won't always get things right, but we are comfortable taking risks. Um, and if it doesn't work, then we'll reassess and, and do something different. Um, but we want, I remember earlier on in my career, I thought, oh, it'd be great to work with a whole bunch of people like me. Wouldn't that be fun? Be like the most terrible thing ever. <laughs> and I realized that I need to work with a lot of people who aren't like me and just a whole variety of people and nobody has all the answers. But you, you need that cross section of, Cynthia, I don't think you've thought about this enough. I'm like, right, I haven't because I don't like to and it kind of makes me uncomfortable. But I'm glad you're here and now we will focus the amount of attention we need to on that because you're here. And like, I, I love to hear that. So like when I think back to my not-for-profit days and like, I mean, I love, I never burnt out on the work. I loved the work. So I did like mental health and addiction um, uh, counseling. I loved, loved the work. And I, you know, I saw and was exposed to some really, really, really challenging tough things to digest, but I, I believed in the work. Mm -hmm. The leadership was so wacky. I, at one point I had this leader who was a painter and was a terrible painter and insisted that we all have their art in all of our offices. <laughs> and like, it wasn't like a question. You came in and then their art was their up on your, there. so they would go into your office when you weren't there. And also, they would do this thing where it's like whoever we every one of the therapists had an office that had windows except for one office which was kind of in the center of the floor had no windows and whoever was the therapist that was out with the boss got stuck in that space and he would literally come and move your office on the weekend so you'd go away on friday and then you show up on monday and he'd be like oh yeah i moved your office it was the most wow. It was the most insane experience because I remember looking at the team and just being like, these people are such good therapists. I'm learning so much uh, from them and constantly trying to navigate your boss where it's like, hey, I know this person actually at their core is okay. probably a pretty decent person because you're, you're here trying to help people. Right. But you're like petty. Well, say it's you're indulgent and he's being indulgent because he's in an organization that's like unskilled at leadership. And when an organization's unskilled at leadership, it creates indulgence. And indulgence means that you go to the lesser parts of your personality if permitted. So pettiness, like territorial, political. Mm -hmm. I remember one day I stood up to him and I was like, I bet you my office has moved on Monday. And I came back, I was like, oh God, I'm in the crappy windowless office. And and also mm -hmm. what he wasn't just indulgent, we all were, right? We'd get we'd squabble with each other, we'd gossip because there wasn't a healthy culture. Mm -hmm. And from that cultural perspective, there's something that um, in my current career as a coach, there, I have a strong belief of kind of the hierarchy of, of what keeps people in the workplace. Do you mind if I share it with you? Mm -hmm. I think there's four things that people care about that define whether or not people are, want to stay in an organization, really commit to doing their best work there. The number one thing is their connection to their boss. And I don't mean whether or not they like their boss and if they're buddies with their boss. Do they have a boss who's invested in them? And I don't mean financially invested, like does the boss stretch them, pay attention to them, give them relevant feedback? Can their boss have a good, con like a challenging conversation with them in a healthy and productive way? Does their boss, what you'd said earlier, do what they say they're gonna do? Mm -hmm. Say what they're gonna do and then do what they say. Um, is their boss uh, consistent? You know, does their boss uh, refrain from getting indulgent and actually focusing on what the organization or the people need? If someone has a strong connection to their boss, it is the most, from my perspective, the most 
informative of whether or not they're going to stay in a place and do their best work. So that's the first. The second is uh, their team and being within group within a team. And I don't mean like being like buddy buddy with your team, which is always nice, mm -hmm. but are the people that you're with enabling you to do the best work you've ever done? So do they remove barriers from you? Do, are they genuinely helpful because they care? Are they um, willing to openly share information? Is there strong communication within a team? Is it a team empowered and empowering? Like if you're on a team where you're like, I'm doing the best work I've ever done, like the highest level of work I've done mm -hmm. and I'm connected to my boss, that person's staying. Mm -hmm. The third thing that people uh, care about from my perspective is whether or not they actually like what they do. And it sounds so wild to think that would be like the third thing that it I know. It does, noticed. yeah. If people really like and respect their boss and feel like they're growing and they're, they're being stretched, they could be doing work that they might find a little um, boring or, or not super captivating or even work that they're like, oh, this is not really where I expected myself to go. But they can still be in the game. Of course, people want to really enjoy what they do, the, the essence of what they do. Mm -hmm. But if they have those two things, they're much more willing to do work that isn't exactly like their passion. The last thing I found people care about, and it's not that they don't care about it, but if they have those other three things in, in place, they're more willing to play with this bottom line, is um, how much they get paid and what are their benefits. And benefits, also I mean like work-life balance. Benefits and pay totally matter for sure. But if you work in an organization where your boss totally is respectful of you and really stretches you and gives you good opportunities to grow, you work with a team that helps you do your best work and you like what you do, you're very willing to get paid less as long as it's like a willing or a living wage. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think from not-for-profits, it's just like, I've often seen this like inverted thing where they're like, oh, well, let's try and do as much as we can to pay people well, where it's like, no, like you should be having the highest level of leadership, the strongest level of leadership, and then go from there. My experience with not-for-profits certainly wasn't terrible. Like the work was amazing, but like there was no investment in leadership. There was no investments in the team. We all loved what we did. Um, and then we got paid, you know, whatever we got paid. Yeah, I think you know, I've seen a little bit um, more in the early years with the food bank um, where some donors would um, be concerned about a level of overhead in a charity and not wanting to donate, potentially. Um, a more grassroots charity was, was sort of their speed. But as you look at what is involved in a charity and you're know, talking about the leadership and what does it take to get good people and keep good people so that we can do this work? Well, you have to take care of those people. And that means a certain amount of time and effort spent on coaching, supporting. Um, that means a decent HR department and making sure you're doing things legally and within the law and, uh, and that you have a health and safety team and that you are um, abiding by all of your work safe requirements. And when you sort of connect the dots for people in what that ultimately means um, for retention and that difference that we can make on the front line versus if we didn't have this and we continued to have, say, a 30 or 40 percent churn in employees, we're never going to get any traction. Those kids programs and the seniors program, that never would have been built we wouldn't be able to feed as many people as we are now because we wouldn't have been able to focus on the relationships we have. So many things like that. But I think when people look at charities, they think, oh, just you just got to make sure that, you know, almost all the money's going right onto the front line. Well, if all the money we did 
we had was spent on food, then it would sit in a warehouse and rot. There wouldn't be refrigeration and um, all of the equipment and all the staff to move it around and the racking to store it and the people to plan the menus and the trucks to take it to all the different places. And there's, there's so much more. So it's, we try and approach it, I guess, from an educational standpoint. I think we've been pretty successful like that, but, um, but I definitely have, have seen that as well in the charity sector where it's just, there's a churn and we're, it's not about taking care of people. It's almost seen as wasteful, you know, wasting donors money, but, but it isn't. And I agree if this is supposed to be such important work, then why don't we try and get the best people on it? Totally. Uh, and that's why when I was like working the not-for-profits, there was this kind of like, well, this isn't a, this isn't a business. This is like, you know, like we're, we're different than the corporate world. And yeah, like, yeah, for sure. But also like, yeah, but it would probably be pretty good if we had actual business people helping us like figure out how to run this thing, yes. right? Yeah. Um, which is why I love your story. Let's get into your actual role though. Because um, I think a lot of people, when they hear COO, you know, chief operating officer, they're like, what does that actually mean? So what does it actually mean? Well, I think it's, it's probably a little different maybe at a, at a food bank than, than in the business world. But at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, um, that means that um, I look after a few different areas. So one of them is distribution to individuals. So the teams and the work that, that goes on um, related to getting that food out every day. Um, and um, I also look after fundraising and communications. Um, so that's a team that we've really grown um, over the years. Um, and, uh, and all of our community events as well. So how we show up in the community and the things that we do there. Um, and, and in there, in that fundraising area is of course, all the stewardship and the donor relationships and all those things that make donors feel like they're, they're connected to the organization. Um, and then I have some, um, people on my team who also take care of, um, sort of facilities and IT and data and things like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, for our CEO, he has other areas reporting into him. So the, the warehouse and operations and agencies and HR and, and uh, finance. Um, but we do a lot together. So the CEO, I know, CEO and I work very closely together. And we, and we really try to involve the management team in decision making. So, yes, I have these lines reporting into me, but that doesn't mean that we don't consult each other. Um, and the rest of the team on a lot of what's going on and the decisions, again, because we know it's so connected. You can't make a change in one area without that affecting the warehouse or the drivers or deliveries. Um, so, uh, so it is pretty, pretty connected. But, um, but fundraising, certainly, and communications are, um, are a big part of what I focus on supporting. And because like that shift, we said we're like we're no no longer taking like direct food donations, and we're we're making this this different shift. It sounds like there's some like real creative thinking and reimagining that's going on. So how do you bridge the gap from being a COO to like kind of creative thinking and big ideas to like okay, this is actually how we make that happen? So very specifically, how do you even populate the idea to the general public? Hey, helping out is no longer bringing that food in the back of your cabinet that you don't care about or that you don't like, mm -hmm. it's now this. How do you make that happen with the, with the, with the general population? Well, I think I, I probably fell back on a lot of the, 
business experience and training that I've had. And when you are making a change, people need to understand why. Um, so if we are going to make this change, we need to explain it. Um, we need to explain it in a, in a simple way and in a way that creates transparency and to give people an option. So we're saying no thank you to this, but we're saying yes please to something else and here's why. So a big part of it for me is the why. As with anything, if it's a change for staff, if it's a change for donors, I'm a big believer in sharing information um, and uh, perhaps to a fault sometimes, but I think the more you can explain to people, information diffuses stress and anxiety. So here's a change I'm going to implement, but I'm going to tell you everything I can about why so that you understand so that it's not stressful and that you clearly understand what you can do next. So we just worked on communications a lot. I love to write. I love to communicate. So, you know, that's kind of a fun part for me is how can we do this through the media, through the channels that we have and explain it. Um, and, and visuals are, are important too, in terms of here's, um, you know, bringing the media in and having them cover, here's some of the food that we receive in food drives. Here's the food that we hand out to people and to agencies and in our programs. It doesn't align. And here's what it costs us to get rid of that. So this is why it's more important. So I just come at it from, I guess, an explaining type of approach. The approach that the food bank's taking now, though, it seems like it seems like a shift from like a passive approach. Like we're basically redistributing what we get from people. So we're getting this stuff from people. We can't promise that we can't speak to the quality or any of these things. We're just getting a bunch of stuff and we're doing as best as we can to get stuff and then redistribute it from like almost a passive way of dealing with it to more of an active way where it's like now you have purchasing power. You can make decisions about okay, now we have money to buy food and we're going to have types of relationships that allow us to use this purchasing power in a way that we get more food, but we get better food and we can actually create, I love what you're saying, like the menu. Mm -hmm. That shift is like a very, like a really serious mindset shift to make with an organization. So was the organization like totally we're with you or did you have to kind of pull them along with you? Well, certainly, I mean, we recognized initially uh, that we had a ways to go before we could make that shift. And that's why it took a few years to get there. We needed the community profile. We needed the success in fundraising. We needed the, um, the recognition as a five-star, you know, top charity with charity intelligence. Things that we didn't have when, when David and I started. So we needed to build that up to a point where we were comfortable saying, if we say no to this, we can rely on the other forms of support and explain the purchasing power is a great example, which can be two to one. It can be in our last month, our purchasing power on potatoes was something like 13 to one. It, it was incredible. So, um, so yeah, to get to that point um, was really important. And I think because we'd been talking about it for so long and verbalizing the challenges that we had with food drives, um, we really moved um, as, as a group and it wasn't a hard shift to make within the organization at all. It shocked the industry a bit. It was a bold move, but we are kind of like that as an organization. And again, wasn't a uh, you know, snap decision. It had been planned for a long time, but other food banks loved it. And they're like, yeah, I wanna learn more about that. So if you just get the money, then you can buy the fresh and you don't have to rely on these 
unknown, somewhat dodgy donations that don't help you plan your menus, that kind of thing. So I think a lot of it was um, just having the team ready at the right time in the right place. Yeah. And to me, it sounds like a strong evolution from like, okay, we're, uh, this is a temporary solution, community-based and kind of then temporary becomes semi-permanent, becomes permanent, but it's more of a reactive space Mm -hmm. to saying, okay, well, no, we know this is going to go on for however long it's going to go on. We don't know. We, we can't see an end in sight. We have to stop being taking a passive approach. Let's take an active approach. Let's get our data and analytics. Shout out to Adam Lentz about analytics. Get our data and analytics. Let's make a business case. Let's make this shift. Inform the public. Bring them along. Get the organization ready. Execute. Now we have purchasing power. Now we can be active in this work. That is a huge shift that for me, it's like, I, in a lot of ways, it's like what it's all about for me is like, if you're going to help figure out first step in and do everything you can, but then figure out better and better and better and better ways to help. Anything else you want to say about that before we go a little bit more clean rolling with the show? Oh, I just, I liked what you said about bringing, you know, bringing the public with you. Um, it reminds me of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I think one of the things that made her such an incredible leader was that she had that ability to bring people with her and that impact and influence far beyond anything that I will ever have. But I, I keep it in my head because sometimes you get frustrated. It's just like, why don't you get this? Right. But, um, you can let yourself have those moments, but it is really important. That is the goal. Bring everyone with you. And now you want to turn your donors into advocates. And now we, we literally see on social media, I'm doing a virtual food drive for the food bank because their buying power is two to one. And this is way better uh, way to support them. Come and join me. And so we've created champions out there. It's that ripple in the pond effect. One of my favorite therapists told me that a long time ago. And she's like, you're like that pebble and the ripple in the pond. And somebody sees that and they do something else. And I've always loved that analogy. And I think that's what we've been able to do with our donors. Um, Let's talk a little bit about you and something I know that's very important to you, which is uh, women in leadership. So like I said to you before we started, uh, Monica, who produces the podcast, is my partner. So you know, we're, we live together. We're together all the time. We're raising a family together. And then Mike, who is our engineer, uh, not only do we work together, we play in a band together. And when we go on tour, Monica also comes on tour with us. So the three of us are together like all the time. And we're always like spitballing ideas about who should be on, on the show. And one day, like we were all together and I happened to look at LinkedIn. I saw one of your posts and I was like, oh, Cynthia needs to be on the show. And that day you had just written something about the food bank where I was like, damn, this is like so cool. But also like, you know, I don't pay attention to a lot of people on LinkedIn, but I always pay attention to you. A, because we know each other. And when we met each other years ago, I was just so impressed by you, like your willingness to put your ideas out there, the way that you just like, like really could hold a room in a positive way while also giving other people space to, to speak. Like very, very like influential and inspirational in the way that you conduct yourself. But also like the way that you're just super open to sharing successes, challenges, what's going on in the food bank, what's going on with your career, in both your writing and how you connect with people. So I knew I wanted to have you on the show because I just respect you so much and I absolutely adore the work that you're doing. I think it's so important. When we were gearing up for it, Monica was like, hey, we really should connect on the angle of women in leadership because it's so important. A, it's so important. And B, because you can speak to it so well and you have such like clear passion about it. So what can you share with us about your perspectives of women in leadership and really the, the things that are that you would 
you'd love people to take away from this this conversation? One of the things um, I started saying at the food bank because I noticed uh, that a lot of women, and not just women, but men also, say when they are contributing to a conversation is sorry. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I just you know want to add this, or I, you know, I'm not sure if that makes sense, or sorry. And I started calling people out on it and just saying, you don't need to be sorry for what you're about to say. You are valued. We want to hear your opinion. Please don't apologize for it. And it took some time, but it has had a great impact to the point where I now have other managers telling me, you were in my head on the weekend as I was having a conversation. I was about to say sorry, and I didn't. And I thought, oh, that's amazing because we we need everybody to contribute equally. And I see that more as a female thing than a male thing for sure. Um, And another thing that I tell women, I don't really hear myself telling men this, but um, take up more space. Women try to fit into the smallest possible wedge in the room and not always make noise or be noticed. And I want you to take up more space. Your opinions are valued and nobody will know them unless you tell us and we have that conversation. And and yes, you need to have an environment where um, you know people are welcomed and, and encouraged. Um, so we definitely try to do that. Um, and I think the other thing that pops into my mind with women in leadership is is a bit of imposter syndrome. And I was talking with somebody about that the other day. And when I first heard that term, I didn't really know what it meant. And then I thought, oh, yeah, no, I've had that. I've had that sort of sense of like maybe getting a new job and looking around thinking, why am I here? I can't do this. Like these people have done more than this. But realizing that you are where you are for a reason and you might not bring the skill set that one of your colleagues brings, but you bring really valuable skills and experience and some things are measured more easily than others, but you were brought here for a reason. And I have a, a history of being brought into organizations because I'm different, into tenured teams where people have worked together a long time, but they want some fresh ideas, but they don't want that new person to piss everybody off along the way, right? There's a, there's a way to do that and, and build relationships. So I think um, I've become accustomed to that. And yeah, and I'm just a a big believer in being authentic. And it doesn't always win me friends. um, And it can be a strength and a weakness. But for whatever it is, I value it um, enough to just try to always be that way. And of course, there are ways to say things and ways to not say things. But I often think um, there was a, a guy that I worked with at McKenzie Financial, and he was kind of a colleague reference when I was getting interviewed by BC Hydro. And he said, um, he said, I told your future boss, I said, you'll never have to wonder what Cynthia's thinking, because she'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) And I've never forgotten it. And I did, you know, I didn't really realize that about myself, but I, but it's true, I I will tell you. And if you don't want an honest answer, then then don't ask me the question, because I'm not going to make one up. I'll tell you what's going on, or what I think. Is that something that you found your way to, or has that been kind of how you've lived your life mostly? It's kind of how I've lived my life mostly. Um, I've always had a really strong inner rudder. I'm not a religious person, 
at the end of the day, there are only two eyes looking back at you in the mirror and they need to be good with how you've handled yourself that day, the relationships you've built and, and what you've done. There's a great line on Fraser that I always remember too, uh, not that it's from there, but it's where I heard it, you know, ethics are what you do when no one's looking. And that's very impactful to me. Yeah. Um, so when you're talking earlier, it's like you, you've, you've observed women kind of fitting uh, in leadership and fitting kind of that smallest wedge in the room. Mm -hmm. You've had a different approach. So when you're thinking about like mentorship or supporting other women in the workplace, what are, what are the things that, what are the things that you could share with other people or what are the approaches that you've taken to help uh, other women in leadership or other women in the workplace step out of that kind of minimizing space? Mm -hmm. Like something simple, like stop saying I'm sorry, which is like Western Canada. I feel it's like mm -hmm. so prevalent, mm -hmm. but that of course that being one thing is moving away from minimizing language like that. But what are the other things that you've either done yourself or you'd suggest to others who are trying to really like mentor or coach uh, other women in leadership or women in business? Uh, well, I mean, a couple of things. I think one of the things uh, is I often ask why and keep asking why in terms of decisions they've made to do or not do something. Encouraging people to look at the other side of things, maybe the, the scary side that they hadn't thought of if they'd taken a more bold approach. Um, and just playing things out with them. So what I find with some women is they will um, take the path of least resistance. I will encourage a path of more resistance. So what, what would happen if you asked that question or if you had that conversation or if you sent that email? Um, and in fact, why don't you try it? What would it take to get you to the point where you could just do that thing and try it and see how it feels. Take up a little more space and, um, and do the thing. Sometimes you just have to play out the steps a little bit and women can't always see what's next. Just like, oh no, I, I'm not comfortable doing that or I, I don't want to do that. So I think playing it out so that they can see themselves taking on a bigger role and then just and encouraging and sometimes being very specific in terms of asking them to present back to a management team or doing something on their own that we've done together. Are you ready now to, to do this one on your own? But always kind of pushing from that development side. And of course, it needs to be guided by what they want to do. And that needs to be at the core of it. So what what do you want to do? Where do you want to be at the end of this year or or in five years? And then how can I help you get there? And if there are any stories that I can tell from what I've lived through, whether that's been good or gruesome, then I'm happy to share that as well. Heck yeah. Uh, a, I love that. B, I was secretly hoping you were going to actually say the path of resistance because the path of resistance is this like hardcore band, like a legendary hardcore band from Syracuse, New York. Shout out to Syracuse Hardcore. And I was just like, please say the path of resistance. <laughs> But I, I love that um, it, it can, you know, I, I, being a coach and also being a therapist, I have a lot of ideas of how I, I want to encourage people to, to think about things. And also like being very thoughtful of like, well, being a guy and mm -hmm. being a, a guy who's in a position of uh, influence or authority or privilege, I always want to be real cautious about like how I tell people who have different life experiences of me of like, 
how they should be in the work world. Mm -hmm. And especially on the podcast, one of the things that I think is the most valuable is getting getting voices of people within group and within population who I just think so clearly demonstrate the power of kind of how you position yourself and your willingness to speak to share their stories. So thank you for that. I, I think it's um it can be unhealthy for like just some dude to be like, hey, women in leadership, this is how you should be. So I really appreciate you you sharing that. Um, as we're heading towards the, the close of the interview, I want to hit on a couple more things about uh, the organization specifically, and then I want to go into the, the crucial three. At the end, I always ask three very difficult questions, and they get more difficult as we go along. Before we get to that, um, one of the things I wanted to ask about was uh, people accessing your services. Uh, there seems to be two things. Well, there's two things I want to talk about. Is there like an educational factor where, because some, I would imagine some people accessing services may not have a strong upbringing in nutritious and healthy food and how to kind of meal plan or, or, or really get on that path of having like um, a healthier way of engaging with food. Is there any educational component in your services around that? So at the, at the moment, well, pre-COVID, we did have some um, cooking classes and nutrition classes. Um, and it was a sort of a small offshoot of the food bank. Um, and then when COVID hit, uh, all of those things sort of came to a halt. We haven't picked that up at the moment, but what we do is um, within the menus that we provide, we will use menu boards. We used to hand out recipe cards, but pretty much everybody has a phone these days. So we'll use like a sandwich board and um, put a menu for um, how to cook a certain type of food, vegetable, or you know how to use hemp hearts for little kids because they're so nutritious. What can you put those in, make it simple so that people can just take a picture um, because we want to be sure that people know how to use the f and cook the food that we are distributing. Also, how do you outreach to your audience? So people who are accessing your services or would access your services or might not know how to do it or might feel like a great sense of like embarrassment or shame about it. Like how do you reach out to people and build that relationship? I mean, some of our clients hear about us um, on their own through social media or in the news. Uh, some are referred by social workers, for example, doctors. Um, but the, and absolutely, sometimes that can be a difficult decision um, to make that first call. And our team is so aware of that and they are so welcoming. Um, so when, when someone finds themselves in need of our services, the first step is to call and make an appointment for uh, registration, come in, have a conversation with us. We get to know you. We um, go through everyone in your family, where you live, make sure you know, you're in the coverage area for us and explain who we're here to help and everything that we can do to support you and everyone in your family. Um, and people, I, I'm pretty confident in saying always walk away glad that they came and thrilled with the food that they are walking away with often in disbelief actually at the at the food that they are able to take home and that they can come back every week and get this food and be welcomed by our staff and welcomed by our volunteers we have a lot of regular clients um, and so we we get to know them uh, but that first visit's really important yeah um and then 
before again, before we get into the, the final three, is there anything that you want to shout out, any people, any organizations, anything that you want to put out there? We'll put all your details in the bio for, uh, on the episode, mm -hmm. but is there anything that you want to bring to light for the audience at all? Anyone, anyone or anything you want to mention? I think just the thing that I generally mention in the media is when you want to support your food bank, call them, visit the website, see what they need and then do that. Don't assume that you know what they need, um, but ask. And maybe it's volunteering. Maybe uh, you know it is a certain type of food for food banks that accept food. Maybe it's cash. Um, but just call, make that connection, find out how your help can be most valuable. That's the best way to start. Yeah, yeah, awesome. All right, you ready for the three? Okay. All right, so going right back to the very beginning of our conversation, you look at a food bank and you're like, they get food, they give food, but there's like a huge complexity of things mm -hmm. that go on. What are some of the most surprising things that people wouldn't recognize that go into running a successful food bank? Perhaps the infrastructure required. Um, we are the largest food bank in BC, so we can accept donations that nobody else can. And with the hundreds of thousands of cubic feet of refrigeration that we have, we can store food and distribute it. We can also help out other food banks around BC. Um, but that costs money and, and that is a big part of the funding that we go after. There is some government funding that's available now, which is great around infrastructure. Um, but the infrastructure and the cold chain, the, the refrigerated trucks and all of the staff, the, the level of staff that you need to accept, store, prepare and distribute food is massive. Um, it is our biggest team is the team that distributes food to people. Everything that goes into setting up on any given distribution day and organizing the 60, 70,000 volunteer hours that we have every year, there, there's so much that goes into getting that food into somebody's hands. Yeah. Um, when even or just talking about refrigeration, I'm thinking like, the electricity that costs to run all that refrigeration, the actual refrigeration units and all the pieces of that, the repairs for the refrigeration units, like all of that stuff in and of itself must be a huge thing to deal with. It is, and then you think about properties. So just finding a building that is suitable to feed, we're signing up 800 to 1,000 new people every single month right now. So you just think about that for a second and what that does to your, your physical needs as an organization. Um, so we lease two properties in Vancouver um, and we pay property tax. The churches generally don't pay property tax. They get a break, but uh, food banks don't always. It depends on their municipality. So there's another thing that people maybe don't always think of is you, you, you need the space to do this. It has to be appropriate. Can your trucks get in there? Can people get there? Does it have the right transit access? Are the ceilings high enough? Um, and And then how much is that costing you each year? And then $150,000 to the city of Vancouver each year for those two properties it would be awesome not to have to spend that. In the beginning of our conversation, you talked about, and you also just mentioned, this isn't a, pro this isn't a challenge that was temporary This is 40 years ago. Mm. It's something that's become a, a part of, of our society. And it's not necessarily something the government's going to intervene in and fix and do something about. But beyond that, it's actually something that is growing. And you're saying that most food banks now are being overutilized. They're like at a breaking point. Mm -hmm. 
from your perspective, what can the common person do today, but also what can a common person do in their year or the next few years to help support this, the, what's going on now, but also stem the tide of this like really difficult challenge society's facing? Well, that's a good question. I mean, because as you know, what can the common person do to sort of solve food insecurity? I mean, I do think it's largely um, a government issue in terms of sources of poverty. Um, but I think that the awareness that there are people in their own community that might be struggling, and I think the need to um, look out for that and be ready to both highlight the need to support a food bank, but also to maybe suggest a food bank. Maybe there's something in your child's school where there's an opportunity to um, not just raise money, but to highlight for some families who might need the use of a food bank. Our community events and engagement manager had that sort of denouement moment when she was at a school and they were talking about um, raising money and uh, supporting the food bank. And a little girl approached her in a very strategic way and had her come out of the classroom and said, how would my family be able to become a client of the food bank? And we had never thought of that. We'd gone into schools and it's all about raising money or back then food drives. And so now we approach all these community situations with kind of a two-sided business card. One is how to support and one is how to access. So I think for for everyday people, I think that's an important awareness in terms of keeping your eyes and ears open about who among you or around you might need some support. Um, and I think the food waste issue, don't buy more than you need. Really focus on your leftovers. We don't need to be consuming as much. Buy what you need, eat your leftovers, teach your children the, the value of that. Um, and and help us reduce this wasteful society that we're in. Yeah, uh, one, like 100%. I got to say, I'm just like, I know this sounds asinine, but like I'm, I'm pissed off. Like I'm pissed off that we're in the situation where things are moving to a degree where people can't keep up financially. And, and of course, I know COVID played a part of it. The economy yeah. plays a part of it. But even what you're saying, it's like, salaries, um, pensions, all these things haven't kept up with inflation. It just feels like we're on this runaway cart going over a cliff. And a little bit maybe like most of us are like this, myself included. This conversation has been so enlightening to me where for anyone who's taken stuff out of this, I encourage you to think like, what can we do to maybe at least take our hands off and we're like, holy crap, we're heading towards the cliff right now because it's very easy to forget how quickly you can go from I have enough money to I don't have enough money. Um, so I think in everybody's story, like in every hungry person's story, anyone who's experiencing food, uh, food insecurity, we're all in that story, either because we're standing idly by or because we could be that person quicker than we could possibly imagine. Right. All right, last question. Um, you know, big shift for you, like you had this big like, you know, you're in the business world. Uh, you hadn't really thought about like um, doing this as a career space. And you took this leap into it. And you've done incredible work in an organization doing incredible work. What is the thing that you have learned about yourself 
as a person and a leader that you did not know about yourself before taking on this specific job? That I didn't know about myself. Um, um, well, I mean, I, I didn't know that I would be as comfortable as I am in this public role, uh, for sure. Um, and at first that was nerve wracking. Um, but, but it is a comfortable place for me. And I think just because we're, we're so behind the message that we have to share and it's, it's such a good cause. Um, but that's certainly been a new piece for me. Um, and a bit surprising, but, but I've enjoyed it. And, and I get to use language, which I love, and I get to write as part of that. So it's, um, it's brought some enjoyment. It is strange to be watching the news and see yourself. There's always something slightly uncomfortable about that. Um, but I'm, but I'm proud to be a part of this organization and to be, um, sharing that message. Heck yeah. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, anything that you want to add as we're closing off? I think maybe just um, around women in leadership um, and getting knocked down and just getting back up. There can be some scenarios where you might not quite believe what is happening and you know that it's not right, um, but stay true to who you are and your ethics because that at the end of the day will will guide you and you will find a better place if you need to or you will create a positive change in in the place that you're in but yeah there certainly been some dark times for me as a as a female leader um it would be great to get to a point where we didn't say the words female leader it was just leader but um but don't give up because we need a balance. We need, we need male leaders and we need female leaders and we need good leaders who have coaches and, and are supported in, in their skills. So don't lose hope. Talk to a friend, um, talk to a colleague and keep going. Excellent. Thank you. What an amazing place to end. So thank you so much. Uh, everyone will see you in the outro. And Mike, drop the beat. One, two, three.